0: Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes descriptions of kidnapping, murder, mutilation, abuse, and harm against minors that some people may find disturbing. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. From start to finish, Lisa Montgomery's story is heartbreaking. It's hard not to feel for her. She experienced unimaginable horror, and yet she survived. Usually, we'd applaud her resilience. But one fateful decision twists all that on its head. Lisa goes from victim to perpetrator of a particularly gruesome and violent crime. And just like that, our sympathy evaporates, replaced by the instinct to label her evil. The hard thing to remember is that Lisa is neither completely good nor bad. Her story is filled with shades of grey, and sometimes judging a person is easier said than done. Where will you fall at story's end? there's only one way to find out. Welcome to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. History has seen its fair share of women in trouble with the law, but whether or not they were all criminals is sometimes open to interpretation. This is the show where we cover the full spectrum of women behaving badly. Last week we met Lisa Montgomery, a woman who suffered intense abuse throughout her life. We learned how she broke away from reality so often it became permanent. And in that fragile mental space, she decided the only way to remain safe was to keep having children, even once she couldn't have any of her own. Today we'll follow Lisa as she goes to violent lengths to procure a baby. Then we'll cover her arrest and sensational trial where the stakes are life and death. We've got all that and more coming up, stay with us. Hi, I'm Blair. Wanna hear something scary?
1: Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels
0: around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, Adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now, listen for free on Spotify. In December of 2004, 36-year-old Lisa Montgomery was telling everyone she was eight months pregnant. The only problem was she was lying, and her ex-husband, 44-year-old Carl Bowman, was sure of it. Carl wanted custody of two of their four children, and he threatened to expose Lisa if she didn't agree to his demands. Under that pressure, something in Lisa broke— in her mind, she had to have a baby or her entire life would fall to pieces. But she knew just where a child was waiting for her. She'd had her eye on 23 year old Bobby Joe Stinnett ever since they'd met earlier that year. And unlike Lisa, Bobby Joe was actually eight months pregnant. That made her the perfect target. So Lisa posed as Darlene Fisher, a woman who wanted to buy a rat terrier from Bobby Joe's kennel. It all seemed so methodical, but don't be fooled into thinking that Lisa was thinking straight. She had a slew of mental illnesses that included bipolar disorder, dissociation, and complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Even on her best days, she was a jumble of contradictions, and at this moment, she was in the middle of a very long, psychotic episode. Before we continue with Lisa's psychology, please note that I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. When the word psychotic gets bandied about, we often think of someone who both acts and looks, well off their rocker yet according to clinical psychologist katherine porterfield being psychotic doesn't mean a person is unintelligent or can't carefully plan something out it just means that they're acting under the influence of a psychotic set of beliefs or thought processes so when 36 year old lisa got into her toyota corolla on december 16th she acted under those beliefs She had a plan, a motive, there was premeditation. However, her mind was so broken that she couldn't reason right from wrong. That was what made her psychotic. That's also what made her concoct such a horrific crime. Before I continue with the story, I wanna let you know that what comes next is incredibly graphic and disturbing, so listen with caution. At 2:30 that afternoon, Lisa pulled up outside Bobby Joe's house in Skidmore, Missouri. Inside, Bobby Joe was chatting on the phone with her mom, Becky. Becky wanted to ride somewhere, but Bobby Joe told her she couldn't leave yet. She was waiting to meet with Darlene. Just then, Bobby Joe heard a knock at the door. She told her mom she'd talk to her later and hung up the phone. It's not clear if she recognized Lisa when she opened the door, or if she just thought Darlene looked vaguely familiar. After all, she'd only met Lisa in person once before. Either way, Bobby Joe welcomed Lisa inside and led her to the spare bedroom that she'd converted into a kennel. Meanwhile, Lisa bided her time, waiting for the opportunity to strike. She eyed Bobby Joe's baby bump desperate to take what was inside. So when Bobby Joe turned her back to pick up one of the dogs, Lisa pounced. She grabbed a rope she'd brought with her and yanked it around the pregnant woman's neck. She pulled tight, trying to strangle her. Bobby Joe thrashed and kicked, putting up a desperate fight. But Lisa didn't let up. She held firm onto the rope until finally, Bobby Joe fell unconscious. We don't know if she ran back out to her car for more supplies or if she'd somehow managed to sneak them in with her, but at some point, Lisa produced the kitchen knife she'd brought from home. Then, recalling a cesarean section she'd watched online, she carefully sliced into Bobby Joe's stomach. Unsurprisingly, the pain brought Bobby Joe back to consciousness. She cried out and managed to get to her feet, knocking the knife out of Lisa's hands. But Lisa was quicker. Another struggle ensued as Lisa threw the rope back around Bobby Joe's neck. Desperate to break free, Bobby Joe grabbed at Lisa's hair and yanked so hard, she pulled clumps of it out. But even that wasn't enough to shake Lisa out of her psychotic state. She was going to get her baby, no matter what it took. So even once Bobby Joe fell unconscious again, Lisa kept strangling her. She couldn't afford any more mistakes. At this point, the unborn child's life was at risk, and Lisa needed to act fast. After nearly five minutes, Lisa thought it must be over. She picked up her knife and got back to work. And this time, Bobby Joe didn't come to. Lisa sliced into Bobby Joe's stomach until she saw the uterus, With the utmost care, she cut open the womb and there inside was a little girl. She reached in and lifted the premature baby out of Bobby Joe's body. When the newborn cried out, alive and well, Lisa exhaled with relief. It had all been worth it. But she wasn't in the clear yet. She quickly cut the umbilical cord and wrapped the baby up in a blanket, holding her tight against her chest. Then she ran outside, got into her car, and sped down the street. An hour later, Bobby Joe's mother stopped by to see her daughter. Bobby Joe had never called her back about that ride, and she wanted to make sure everything was okay. But when Becky saw the front door ajar, she knew something was wrong. Hearing the dogs barking wildly, she rushed inside, calling out to Bobby Joe. But there was no response. She tore through the house, worried that something had happened with the pregnancy. When she got to the spare bedroom, it was worse than she ever could have imagined. Her daughter was on the floor in a pool of blood, her stomach cut open and her insides scattered, and the baby was nowhere to be seen. Becky called 911 as she rushed to Bobby Joe's aid. While waiting for the emergency responders, she performed CPR, desperately trying to revive her daughter. But it was too late. Bobby Joe was dead. As authorities raced to the scene in Missouri, Lisa drove the 175 miles back to Kansas. The 5-pound, 11-ounce baby sat in the passenger seat beside her. The preemie went from screaming to crying to sleeping, then woke up and started all over again. Lisa didn't mind. She looked over at the child with sweet relief. As far as we can tell, she never thought there'd be consequences to what she'd just done. After all, in her mind, this was her baby. But of course, Lisa was still in a state of psychosis. However, that trance wasn't going to last much longer, and when it ended, she was going to have to deal with the harsh reality of her actions. Up next, authorities
1: race to find the missing newborn. The most urgent mysteries in the world are missing persons cases. The stakes are too high not to pursue every plausible possibility and some implausible ones too. I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new podcast, Disappearances. In 2020, after spending years searching for the truth, I use social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now, every Thursday on Spotify, I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind from child abductions and mystifying murders to those who took drastic measures to start over. Each episode of Disappearances journeys through a different high-profile missing persons case, ripped from the headlines and ripe for explanation because no one just vanishes into thin air. The answers are out there, waiting to be found. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast Disappearances Hear a new episode every Thursday, free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details.
0: Now back to the story. By 5 p.m. on December 16th, 2004, 36-year-old Lisa Montgomery was back in Kansas with the child she'd so desperately wanted. Now, all she needed was to explain how it happened. According to her own fictional timeline, she wasn't due for another month. So as she reached Topeka, a city about 45 minutes away from her home, she pulled into a parking lot and came up with a new story. Then she called her husband. Lisa told Kevin that she'd gone into early labor while doing some shopping. It happened so quickly that she'd rushed over to the local women's center to give birth. She explained that she'd tried to contact him at work but couldn't get through. Of course, none of that mattered to Kevin. Lisa had been feigning pregnancies for years, so he was just happy that a baby had finally come to term. He ran up the stairs to tell the news to Lisa's kids. 18-year-old Desiree and 16-year-old Chelsea were the only ones home at the time, but they joined their stepdad in his excitement. They couldn't wait to meet their baby sister, and the three of them raced to Lisa in Topeka. At no point did Kevin find his wife's behavior suspicious, nor did he think twice about the fact that Lisa didn't really look like she'd just given birth. The same went for her kids. Despite her psychotic episodes and bouts of mania, the idea that Lisa might steal a baby was too outlandish to even cross their minds. Sure, there may have been red flags, but the family's joy overshadowed them all. As they made their way home, Lisa and Kevin even discussed names. By the time they pulled up to their home in Melbourne, they'd settled on Abigail. Back in Missouri, County Sheriff Ben Espy and his team tried to make sense of the gruesome crime. It was clear that someone had killed Bobby Joe to get to her child, but the why of it all was still a mystery. Espy knew this was an all-hands-on-deck situation. In any kidnapping, the first 48 hours are the most important. After that, it gets progressively harder to locate a victim. And because this was an abduction of a premature baby, officials were even more concerned. According to paramedics on the scene, if the infant was alive, there could be any number of medical problems. If they found the child and treated it immediately, it had a good chance of survival, but they couldn't wait too long. Espy understood the gravity of the situation and wanted to put out an Amber Alert immediately. The only problem with that was that no one knew what the baby looked like, and the government headquarters needed distinguishing features to include in the alert. Otherwise, they couldn't send anything out. It took a few hours to find a workaround, but by 12.30 a.m. on December 17th, about nine hours after Lisa had made off with the child, the Amber Alert finally went out. The only specific detail it gave was that the baby might have a recently cut umbilical cord. But at least now, as many people as possible were on the lookout, something Lisa seemed completely unaware of. When she woke up later that morning, instead of laying low, she actually wanted to show off her new baby. And despite all the trauma and lack of medical attention, the newborn was doing remarkably well. She was maybe a little on the small side, but Lisa probably didn't think anyone would suspect anything sinister. Besides, Lisa was less concerned with the baby's health and more focused on what the child meant for her. It wouldn't do her any good to hide out. She needed people to see her with Abigail. According to Kathy Naherney, a senior analyst at the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, women who abduct babies are looking for one of three things, power, control, or Attention. These women aren't driven by an intense maternal desire, rather they crave the status of motherhood. In Lisa's case, that position came with a sense of safety and security. Not only was her plot an attempt to bind her current husband to her, it was also a power play over her ex-husband. It was her way of controlling the narrative. So even though the baby was less than a day old, Lisa wanted everyone to know that Abigail was hers. She and Kevin wrapped the newborn up in a blanket and went down to the local cafe, where Lisa knew she'd draw a crowd. As expected, nearly everyone came over to say hello. Lisa happily regaled them all with the tale of the early birth. And with each telling, she got more committed to her lie. Most of her audience were congratulatory, but a few were taken aback. Still, no one in that cafe questioned the story, not even the ones who'd seen the Amber Alert on the news that morning. It was one thing to hear about a kidnapped baby, but who would ever suspect their neighbor and friend of being the culprit? So when Lisa and Kevin finished their meal, they made their way to the local church. They wanted their Reverend, Mike Wheatley, to meet Abigail. Again, there were signs that something was off, For starters, the Reverend and his wife were surprised that Lisa and Kevin had brought the newborn out in public so soon. While there's no hard and fast rule about when parents can take their child outside, most doctors generally agree that parents should wait a few months before taking a baby around lots of people. That way the child has time to develop a robust immune system and is less likely to get sick. That wasn't all the Wheatleys noticed either. Usually, babies' heads are a little out of shape from being squeezed through the birthing canal, but Abigail's was perfectly round, almost as though Lisa had had a C-section. Still, just like the diner patrons, the Reverend and his wife kept their thoughts to themselves. Odd didn't necessarily mean wrong. And so Lisa and Kevin continued on with their tour. They eventually made their way to the local courthouse to make the birth official, As the staffers ooed and aahed over the little girl, Lisa beamed, soaking up their admiration. Then when all that was over, Lisa wanted to make one more stop. It was the reason she'd gone out and gotten this baby in the first place. She needed to prove to her ex-husband, Carl Bowman, that she really had been pregnant. When 44-year-old Carl saw Lisa with the newborn, he was shocked. His new wife, Vanessa, was equally surprised. So much so that she pulled Kevin aside and asked if Abigail was actually his or if Lisa had bought her. Kevin stared at her. Of course the baby was his. He was so offended, he took Lisa back to the car and left right then. He couldn't believe Vanessa would suggest such a thing. But in the passenger seat, Lisa didn't say a word. She believed her own story as much as he did. Meanwhile, back in Missouri, investigators made an important discovery. While searching through Bobby Joe's online records, they found messages from the Rat Terrier forums. That's how they found out she'd been expecting a visit from a woman named Darlene Fisher on the day of the murder. At first, they thought Darlene might have some information that could help them. But after a little more digging, they realized that Darlene wasn't a real person. A computer forensic specialist tracked Darlene's messages to an IP address in Melvern, Kansas. From there, they figured out the account's owner, Lisa Montgomery. Authorities sent one team to scout Lisa's house. Another secured the necessary warrants. Then they all converged on the property and waited for Lisa and Kevin to return home. That afternoon, the red Toyota pulled into the driveway Kevin and Lisa got out with the baby propped up against her shoulder. They went inside, completely unaware they were surrounded. A minute later, there was a loud, frantic knock on the front door. Kevin answered, perplexed when he saw six FBI agents, flanked by local law enforcement, standing on his doorstep. Still, he stepped aside and let them in. They gathered in the living room where Lisa sat with the child in her lap. When she looked up and saw the officers, her expression didn't change, even as the Amber Alert flashed up on the TV screen behind her. None of it seemed to register with her. When the detectives asked about the newborn, Lisa repeated the story she'd told Kevin a day earlier. She'd gone into labor unexpectedly and gave birth at the Women's Center in Topeka, While one team kept her talking, another set of investigators fact-checked her claim. They found that no deliveries had taken place at the center on December 16th. Even when presented with this information, Lisa kept up the lie. She insisted that Abigail was hers, but the detectives were relentless, continuing to break her down until eventually, reality hit Lisa like a freight train lisa sank into her seat slowly coming to terms with what she'd done she looked down at abigail in her lap and her face fell that's when the officers knew they had her once again they asked her where she'd gotten the newborn and waited with bated breath then with her husband sitting beside her lisa confessed to everything The baby in her arms wasn't hers at all. She belonged to someone else. The woman, Lisa, had murdered. Up next, Lisa faces the death penalty. Now back to the story. On December 17th, 2004, 36-year-old Lisa Montgomery confessed to killing 23-year-old Bobby Joe Stinnett and stealing her baby from her womb. In the Montgomery's living room, officers exploded into a flurry of activity. One took the child out of Lisa's arms and rushed it to the hospital. Another handcuffed Lisa, while others called in updates to their superiors. Meanwhile, Lisa's husband, 36 year old Kevin, sat in quiet disbelief. 24 hours earlier, he'd been the happiest man on earth. Now he was forced to reconcile with the truth. The baby wasn't his and his wife was a murderer. Across town, doctors confirmed that the baby was, in fact, the missing Stinnett child. And all things considered, she was doing remarkably well. 24-year-old Zeb Stinnett, Bobby Joe's husband, raced to the ICU to meet his daughter. He held her little finger in his hand and cried for all he'd lost and for all he'd gotten back. As Zeb was reunited with his child, Lisa lost hers. When her four teenage kids found out what she'd done, none of them wanted anything to do with her. Kevin, however, stayed by Lisa's side. Even after the state prosecutors announced their decision to pursue the death penalty, he couldn't turn on the woman he loved. Not that there was much he could do to help. That was up to Lisa's two appointed lawyers. The first was a public defender named David Owen, who'd never had a death penalty case before. The second was Judy Clark, who specialized in them. Unfortunately, Owen and Clark didn't get along. Owen wanted to go with an insanity defense, while Clark wanted to paint a more sympathetic picture. Her objective wasn't to get Lisa off scot-free. It was clear Lisa was guilty. She even admitted it herself. All Clark wanted to do was make a jury understand that there were mitigating circumstances in the case, She'd done a terrible thing, yes, but Lisa didn't deserve to be executed. However, the two couldn't find a way to work together. And in April of 2006, Owen asked a judge to replace Clark. When he got his wish, Lisa was devastated. She wrote to the judge begging him to change his mind. Instead, a new attorney named Fred Dukert stepped in. But like Owen, Dukert didn't seem to understand Lisa. Neither of them knew how to make her feel safe enough to open up. During one interrogation, Lisa was reportedly so traumatized that she ended up curled in a fetal position on the floor. What Dukert and Owen didn't realize was that there was a way to needle out information from Lisa. They couldn't just go into a room with her, all guns blazing. If they wanted the truth, they needed a more sensitive approach to their questioning. But instead of acknowledging their own flaws, they decided Lisa was just a difficult client. If she didn't want to help herself, so be it. So they charged forward with their insanity plea. The trial started in 2007, nearly three years after Lisa's crime. However, the result was almost a foregone conclusion. As she sat in the courtroom, 39-year-old Lisa listened as her lawyers argued she was insane. They briefly touched on her abuse as a kid, but they only scratched the surface. There was no mention of the alleged sexual torture she endured from her stepfather, his friends, or her ex-husband. The way it was laid out, it felt like they were trying to help their client get away with murder. It was such a flimsy defense that the prosecution called it the abuse excuse, a term coined in 1994 by attorney and legal scholar Alan Dershowitz. Death penalty cases are supposed to work a little differently than the typical trial. Attorneys are allowed to bring in far more evidence than usual. That way they can explain any extenuating circumstances that the jury should take into account. This extra information can be anything from the defendant's age to their mental state. But when we're dealing with female criminals who've been abused, sometimes jurors don't see that as a reason to lighten the sentence. Death Row advocates argue that's because women experience trauma so often that it becomes mundane and trivialized. According to the nonprofit news outlet PRISM, nearly one out of every six women in the U.S. has experienced some form of sexual violence over the course of their lifetime. This seems to lead courts and juries to chalk up tales of abuse as an excuse and not as a mitigating circumstance. We can see that play out for the women who were on death row. According to the ACLU, almost two thirds of them were victims of ongoing abuse. In Lisa's case, the jury was unmoved. After just five hours of deliberation, they came back with a verdict. She was guilty, and they recommended the state put her to death. After the sentencing, Lisa was sent to a prison in Fort Worth, Texas to await her execution. Ironically, it was there that 40-year-old Lisa finally started getting the medical and psychological treatment that she'd so desperately needed all her life. She also got a new legal team for her appeals process, This time, it was led by two women, Amy Harwell and Kelly Henry, and they had a completely different approach to their predecessors. They interviewed friends, family, and acquaintances of Lisa's. In doing so, they uncovered the horrific abuse she'd endured and recognized the mental toll it had taken on her. Lisa had been beaten, raped, tortured, and pimped out, not just by one family member, but three. They also learned how she'd tried to ask for help, but that no one had ever stepped in. Harwell and Henry asked a psychiatrist for help. After their sessions, the psychiatrist called Lisa's case of dissociation one of the most severe they'd ever seen. In addition, Lisa was officially diagnosed with bipolar disorder and complex post-traumatic stress disorder. As far as Lisa's lawyers were concerned, the death penalty should have never been on the table. She was too mentally ill to be executed. Now, Harwell and Henry had to convince the federal government of that. But Harwell and Henry couldn't snap their fingers and get a new decision. The appeals process for death penalty cases can take years, if not decades, So while her lawyers fought for her, Lisa reconnected with her long-lost half-sister Diane, her first and only protector. Eventually, she also made amends with some of her children and learned she was a grandmother. And through it all, she expressed deep remorse for what she'd done. But though this all might have brought Lisa comfort, it had no effect on her case. Slowly but surely, all of her appeals were overruled until finally, in late 2020, the date was set. She'd be executed on December 8th. Then that date was delayed when her lawyers contracted COVID-19, so the judge rescheduled Lisa's execution to January 12th, 2021. That would give her attorney time to recover and to file any last-minute appeals. But at that point, there were only two options left. They could convince the outgoing administration to commute Lisa's sentence to life in prison, or they could delay her execution long enough for President-elect Biden to take office. On the campaign trail, Biden had pledged to end the federal death penalty. They opted for the former. In December of 2020, Lisa's team appealed to the federal administration for mercy. They argued that she was too mentally ill to be executed. Their argument fell on deaf ears. The execution would move forward. Lisa was transferred to the Terre Haute prison in Indiana, the only federal prison with an active death chamber. It was also a living hell where ironically, Lisa was placed on suicide watch. Her cell was blasted with bright light 24 hours a day and all she was allowed to wear was a loose gown with Velcro straps. She regressed, falling back into her dissociative state. She started hallucinating about her mother and the endless abuse she'd suffered as a kid. Reality was too much to handle and she lost touch with it in her final days. Meanwhile, Harwell and Henry exhausted every avenue they could think of, They were fighting to the end. On January 11th, they got a glimmer of hope when an Indiana judge granted a last-minute stay of execution. He agreed that Lisa should have a mental competency hearing. But the reprieve was short-lived. The next day, the U.S. Supreme Court lifted the stay of execution. And that was it. The fight was over. In the early morning hours of January 13, 2021, 52-year-old Lisa was taken from her cell and led to the death chamber. As they strapped her to the chair, Lisa was still in her dissociative state. Onlookers said she looked confused, almost as though nothing around her made sense. It was like she had no idea what was going on. When a prison official asked if she had any last words, Lisa stayed mute. Then, officials injected her with a fatal dose of pentobarbital. At 1.31 a.m., Lisa Montgomery was pronounced dead. She was the first female inmate executed by the U.S. government since 1953. Lisa's execution set off a flurry of op-ed pieces and investigations, Everyone wanted to weigh in on whether it was right to execute a woman with her history of abuse and mental illness. Of course, there was the other side too, the people who thought Lisa's death was justice. She'd murdered and mutilated a young woman, then stolen her baby. She got what she deserved. But despite the arguments about right and wrong, the truth is that there are no winners in this story. Lisa Montgomery's life was a tragedy, and her crime was an atrocity. Whether you believe she deserved her fate or not is up to you. But in the end, there's no denying she paid for her crimes with the ultimate price. Her life. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with a brand new story. For more information on Lisa Montgomery, amongst the many sources we used, we found Baby Be Mine by Diane Fanning extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Alex Burns, with writing assistance by Jane O. and Joel Callen, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Vanessa
1: Richardson. Sarah Turney, host of the new Spotify original from ParkCast, Disappearances. Every Thursday, join me for an exploration into history's most gripping missing persons cases. Following timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the truth. From prison breaks and child abductions to second chances and even murder, we'll journey through the many reasons people disappear. Follow my new podcast, Disappearances, free and only on Spotify.